Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the eastern border. And this time we're going to be talking about Kursk. Not the tank battle. I spoke some time ago about the tank battle in the T-34 episode. No, no, no. The submarine Kursk. The one that sank on August the 12th. It's recovered since then and everything. But I recently watched a um, Russian kind of a pseudo-documentary. And... um, They basically took some guy who had participated in these, you know, psychic challenges, battles of the extra senses and everything like that. They had, like, taken him on a boat and, and, like, drove all over just outside the coast of the Kola Peninsula, east of Murmansk there, and where the Kursk was located. And he psychically really kind of tried hard to put on the fact that it must have been um, an American NATO torpedo that had crushed it. And that kind of falls in line with everything going on with, you know, blame the Americans for everything, obviously, in Russia. But um, even at the time, that's not the only conspiracy. There is also these theories that an American submarine had actually collided with Kursk and many others. And, and there were so many conspiracies and uh, as it happened, it was just crazy. So here I am, and I will try to bring you the whole story and the reasoning why did the Kursk sink. And why, well, bumbling and unreadiness of then very kind of new Russian president, Vladimir Putin, he had been just very recently in power by that point in year 2000, Wow, it's been a long time really now. Why his answers and how his reactions really shocked everyone, and maybe we should have known back then what Putin would do. Because I remember him saying in an interview to um, an American journalist in live television, when asked what happened to Kursk, he just smiled and said, Anna Utanula, or, well, it sank. That she did, that she did, but it's definitely not the whole story. 
It's not even near the whole story, and I want to start with with a nice little timeline and study about it, and a lot of materials, a lot of news articles from various sources have been used from the year 2000, obviously, so take it as you will, and some from a bit future dates when things were clearer. So, let's begin, but first thanks to rusansoft.com, that nice little attire store. So far we have two people who've purchased stuff there. I hope the number increases, you can still go there, rusansoft.com, and just enter Eastern Border at checkout, first letter capitalized to get your 10% discount, or just go to our homepage, theeasternborder.lv, and click the link there, and it'll automatically give you the discount. Uh, They have a lot of great stuff, and it's awesome. And then, of course, we will be super happy if you become our patron at patreon.com slash theeasternborder. Or just follow us on social media. Or just click the donate button on the Eastern Border LV page because it's winter here and it's harsh and, well, we're trying to provide as much entertainment for you and as much historical actual knowledge with facts as possible during this weird COVID era. And don't forget to check out Anata's YouTube channel as well. Yeah, those are, those are the nice reminders over here. So, let's get on with it, shall we? Everything started on the August the 12th, the Russian Northern Fleet completed the military exercise that had started on August 9th, or 10th, because it's, well, the polar regions, and involved around 30 submarines and surface vessels, as well as aviation. On August the 12th, submarines taking part in the training were to carry out a torpedo attack against a group of combat ships which acted as the opponent. The group was under command of the nuclear-powered cruiser Peter the Great, that was also the main target for the submarines. The ships had orders to follow the southeast course. The attacking submarines were in ambush along the course. Kursk was one of the submarines to attack the group, being on the alert in its designated area. Having assumed the region assigned to them, the Kursk sent a radio message to onshore. This report was the last communication between the operations center of the Northern Fleet and the Kursk. Commander of the Northern Fleet, Admiral Vyacheslav Popov, said this contact took place at 8.51 a.m. Moscow time on August 12th. According to the training schedule, the Kursk was to attack the so-called opponent, firing two practice torpedoes from 11.30 to 18.00 Moscow time. Having reported to the operations center, the submarine conducted additional surveillance of the designated area after moving first to its southern border and then back to the northwestern part. Kursk went up to the periscope depth of 19 meters to find the opponent ships, which were to enter the area at around 11. The submarine slowed down to about 8 knots, extended its periscope antennas as well, most probably the device for air intake to fill high-pressure air tanks. The available data say that at the time the opponent was maneuvering approximately 40 kilometers to northwest from the area where Kursk was on guard. Kursk, playing the rules of this hypothetical combat mission, could not attack the opponent before they entered the area the submarine were responsible for. Then weird stuff happened. Because data from the Norwegian seismological station Norsar stated that two detonations were detected on August 12th. The first blast recorded at 7.28 GMT, which is 11.28, 
uh, Moscow time equaled about 100 kilograms of TNT. For the next 2 minutes and 15 seconds, sonar data from the two United States submarines, which were monitoring the training, showed what appeared to be cavitation or propellers going through water. Washington Post, referring to a U.S. Navy officer, reported there was also the sound of machinery working and ballast tanks being blown in an effort to bring the submarine to surface. The most powerful explosion documented at 7.30 GMT, which is 11.30 Moscow time, had 3.5 points on Richter scale, ranging between 1 to 2 tons of TNT detonated underwater. Then, according to the Washington Post, the only sound detected was the creaking of the hull as it headed to the bottom. At 240 seconds after this first blast, the sub was heard hitting the seabed with a crash. Now, well, there was a rescue operation. We'll get to what caused the crash later on, because first let's get through with the timeline. At this point, by the way, uh, Putin was informed about all this situation, but, you know... He didn't even bother to really, you know, get off from his vacation in Sochi. Because vacations in Sochi are a um, very important thing. And you can't just interrupt them just because some 118, you know, guys are underwater in a submarine and they're all about to die now. In an interview with Northern Fleet's daily Nastrasja Zapolaria, or on the guard of Post Polar, head of the rescue service of the Northern Fleet, Alexander Teslenko, described the following sequence of events. The Kursk submarine was to attack a group of surface vessels, like we said, uh, using practice torpedoes. No report of the attack being carried out was received from the Kursk, however. According to the schedule, the submarine was to surface a report that it was leaving its area of exercise at 23.00 Moscow time on August the 12th. But the understanding that something wasn't wrong with Kursk came way before that. The rescue operations chief was called at 17.00. Rescue service of the Northern Fleet operates one tugboat, two vessels, submarine rescue vessel Mikhail Rudnitsky and rescue vessel Altai. The Northern Fleet also has three submersibles, AS-34 Briz, first built in 1986, AS-32, AS-36 Bester, first built in 1994. Without waiting for the report to come at 23.00, the captain of Rudnitsky received orders to have one hour readiness and was fit to leave the base at 22.20. Altai was in one hour readiness by that time. The tugboat was near Kilden Island and was sent to the area of the exercise at 18.31 and arrived at the place at 22.30. The Kursk did not take contact at 23.00. The Slenko arrived abroad Rudnitsky and the vessel left Severomorsk, the home base of the Northern Fleet, in the night from August 12th to August 13th. At 8.39, Rudnitsky reached the border of the exercise field, cut from the Kursk and started searching for the submarine. At 12.05, Rudnitsky anchored and began to monitor the area for radio signals from the Kursk. The vessel also tried to establish verbal radio contact with the Kursk crew. At 15.30, the vessel started preparation of the AS-34 Breeze submersible. While doing so, Rudnitsky moved to the most likely point of the Kursk location. At 16.15, AS-34 was put on water. Five minutes later, the automatic acoustic station on board the Kursk responded to the probe sent from Rudnitsky. At 17.48, AS-34 called the radio contact as well and started to approach. The signal coming from the Kursk was not too spread to establish the precise location of the submarine. At 18.32, AS-34 had the surface having suffered an emergency. The submersible likely collided with the steering wing of the Kursk while being underwater. 
After AS-34 had surfaced and was lifted on board, Rudnitsky was capable of finding the precise coordinates of the submarine and moved to that area. The location of the Kursk was established in 6 hours and 27 minutes after the search party had dispatched, according to Vaslenko. From August 13th to August 14th, from 22.40 until 1.05, another submersible AS-32 was sent several times down to the Kursk, but it failed to establish even visual contact with the submarine. At 4.00 on August 14th, the batteries ran out on AS-34. The regular loading time is 13 to 14 hours, but they were recharged hastily and the submersible was down at the Kursk from 4.55 and until 7.48. The submersible tried to lock with the rescue hatch in the stern of the Kursk, but did not succeed. On August 14th, at 16.00, another submersible was brought to the area of the accident AS-36. The submersible was placed on a floating crane tugged to the area since AS-36's mothership, Herman Titov, was taken out of operation in 1994. But due to the worsened weather, the rescuers failed to put the submersible on water. The crane was not designed to work offshore. The crane was then tugged to the nearest bay, Porchinka, unload the submersible in the quiet waters. The submersible was then towed back to the area of Kursk accident, having been damaged on its way in the rough sea. AS-36 dived again, but suffered an accident again when one of the valves, which regulates the trim, developed a leakage. The submersible had to rest on the seabed for a while and then go up in an emergency. Again. The submersible almost sank when it was on the surface, but one of the cranes managed to grab it. AS-36 was eventually taken on board and repaired. It dived several times after, but failed to dock on the Kursk's rescue hatch. The floating crane was incapable of working in the sea gale, while Rudnitsky, which was reconstructed to carry AS-34 submersible from a lumber carrier, could not provide safe loading and unloading of the submersible. AS-34, swinging wildly when raised from the water, was hitting the board of the ship and received damages. According to Tislenko, echo sounders, sonar, and other equipment were damaged as a result of the collisions during loading and unloading. Tislenko said, all in all, Brits and Bester made 14 attempts to dock with the Kursk. None of them were successful. Let me tell you, all this time, literally, literally all this time, British and Norwegian guys were basically offering to help, but Putin was in Sochi and did not care. Completely did not care. Because he was like, I'm not going to get in the way, not going to give any orders, and he specifically forbade Norwegian and British rescue crews to mount the thing. And it shows something that when the Norwegian divers, after when they were... Because at this point, you know, for five days the rescue attempts were made with these 14 attempts to dock with totally unprepared operations of the Russian rescue crew, right? 14 attempts, they damage their own submersible, they screw everything up badly, they make basically zero progress with this, they just fail in every possible way, the, even the rescue teams damage their own stuff, like, everything goes totally wrong, right? But the Norwegians just, when they were finally allowed to help, um... When the Norwegian divers were finally allowed to help, week later, week later, that means, like, there were people under there for a lot of time, and as far as we know, 23 of those 118 people had managed to survive for quite some time, and they were trying to open the hatches, and they were trying to communicate, and they were trying to survive. Well, when they opened the hatch in the stern of the submarine, at the first try, really, because, you know, they were actually competent at this, and they did it in my birthday, by the way, August 28th, 
But that point they found that the submarine's compartments were all completely flooded with water at that time. And all 118 sailors on the boat, yeah, they were all dead. And then, um, and even during this time, the media madness just, just began and never ended, really. And now, let's talk about what actually happened. I'll quote from the Irish News article from Friday, August the 18th, 2000, which is 10 days before the Norwegian divers got there, because like I said, the sub sank in August the 12th, then there were attempts made to save the people who were apparently, some of them were still alive, and only only in August the 28th, when finally Putin gave this response that they could be saved, the Norwegians got there and found everyone dead. But this is from the article from the irishtimes.com. The title says, Irrefutable data shows Kursk had been involved in a collision. Quote, The Russian authorities yesterday disclosed that the stricken Kursk submarine lying at the bottom of the Barents Sea had suffered much greater damage than initially believed, making it highly likely that many of the crew, the vessel's commanding officers and other more senior Navy officers died instantly last Saturday. As hopes faded of bringing out any of the 118 crewmen alive, the defense minister, Mr. Igor Sergeyev, revived the first theory advanced for the cause of the disaster, a collision with another vessel. The scenario in which the Kursk submarine suffered a collision with another object is now the main one, the defense minister said. Irrefutable data is already available. At the northern fleet's main base of Severomorsk, outside Murmansk, Last night, senior Navy and government officials were examining five hours of video of the sunken submarine taken earlier in the week by an unmanned observation craft before deciding on their next course of action. The video shows massive and severe damage to the submarine, extending from the nose to the conning tower. The accident happened so quickly, we can say it was like a flash, said Captain Igor Diallo, the Navy spokesman. A reporter from the Russia state RTR television said the film showed that the Kursk suffered severe damage. Water flooded the front in a flash and the command center. I mean, the hull was destroyed in a moment, the correspondent said from a ship on the Barents Sea. This is tragic news. When so much water gets into the sub, it's impossible to avoid casualties. Russian sources said the crash theory focused on the notion that the submarine collided with a surface vessel while trying to come up from the depths. Yeah, that's also the thing. It's either NATO is launching torpedoes at them, NATO guys are crashing them in with their own sub, or it just crashing with another sub, but we'll get to that. United States and Norwegian observation ships that detected two blasts at the time of the accident, the second much more powerful than the first. Some attributed the explosions to a torpedo blowing up inside the submarine and triggering another explosion. Norwegian analysts Bellona said the first explosion could have been the thud of the submarine hitting the seabed, which then triggered the more powerful explosion of a pressurized storage tank. As British rescue crew with the LR-5 submarine headed towards the Kursk, the British Ministry of Defense said the submarine was so badly damaged that one of its escape hatches was unusable. The LR-5 would aim for the apparently undamaged hatch at the stern of the vessel. The craft was lying at an angle of 20 degrees less than earlier suggested. It could have shifted during the week. It seems to be far more upright, that is good news, the sources said. But underwater currents were extremely strong and have already severely hampered Russian rescue efforts. 
Although the Russian public and media are rapidly losing faith in pronouncements from the top brass, with a wave of resentment and disgust sweeping across Russia at the way the authorities have handled the crisis, the theory that there had been a collision was supported by the fact that the submarine's periscopes were raised. Retired Admiral Edward Balt, in former commander of the Black Sea Fleet, blamed the disaster on bad planning, lack of training and incompetence. The Kursk is designed for the ocean, not for shallow waters, he said. What it was maneuvering and where it perished is completely wild. Strong current and strong winds. You can't carry out torpedo firing there. Now then, what really happened? Because we have gone from collision to everything and just a crazy thing. And Meanwhile, the media thing happened. See, in response to the avalanche of criticism because of how the things was mishandled there, Minister of Defense Sergeyev and senior commanders of the Navy and the Northern Fleet offered Putin their resignations, but he refused to accept them. Putin lashed back at the press, who had been severely critical of his personal response and the entire government's handling of a national tragedy. During the meeting with the crew's relatives, he loudly blamed the oligarchs who owned most of the country's non-government media for the poor state of Russia's military. Putin told the family members, There are people on television today who over the last 10 years destroyed the very army and fleet people are dying now. They stole money, they bought the media, and they're manipulating the public opinion. When relatives asked why the government had waited so long before accepting foreign assistance, Putin said media had lied. He shouted to the assembled families, They're lying! They're lying! They're lying! Putin threatened to punish the media owners and counter their influence through alternative, honest and objective media. He scornfully derided their ownership of property abroad. They'd better sell their wills to the Mediterranean coast of France or Spain. But I'd have to explain why all this property is registered in false names under front law firms. Perhaps we would ask them where they got the money. In the speech to the Russian people the day after his meeting with the families, Putin continued his furious attack on the Russian media, accusing them of lying and discrediting the country. He said they were trying to exploit this misfortune to gain political capital. Boy, how things have changed. Also, year 2000 was, was the last year when Russia had actually free media, when Russia's, all of the media on the television was not completely controlled by Putin and his cronies, and when the people there were allowed to openly criticize the government without the involvement of, um, you know, various agencies and under the threats, and when, before YouTube... They still had some sources. Soon after this accident and soon after the criticism, really valid criticism, all the media, well, most of it anyways, would be put under state control. And, well, this and the Beslan tragedy, which I'll talk about later in some other episode, again in detail, I think I have done one, but now we have new materials on that. You see, this is the end Putin would not be so kind to the media, and this is the beginning of the end of the press freedom of Russia as well. Kursk kind of stands as this symbolic middle point. But we're sidetracking again. Just a bit. Just a bit. And that's the thing here, because um, what actually happened with the sub? Let's get on with this. At the end, well, I have to kind of spoil it to you. The Russian government had to accept the official theory. And just like with Crimea, when they, at the beginning, denied any involvement of Russian military and then proudly stated that it was Russian army all along, 
yeah, basically the same thing happened here, because after all plausible deniability had gone down the drain, only then they admitted what actually had happened. But we found out the truth thanks to, well, British scientists this time. Hey guys, Annette here. I hope you are enjoying our new episode of The Eastern Border. As always, a big thank you to all of our Patreons. The show would not be possible without your help. If you are not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to the Eastern Border page on Patreon.com. Please remember to also follow us on our social media, like Twitter, where we are known as Eastern underscore Border, and on our Facebook page. We also have a Discord server, so if you're interested in that, find the link in the description of this podcast. That's it for now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. You see, sometimes even the most propaganda sources get things right. And surprise, surprise. The Komsomoyskaya Pravda tabloid, which is a tabloid and basically publishes rubbish these days, but again, it was early 2000s, people were publishing the truth and good journalists were there. And Komsomoyskaya Pravda stands for uh, Communist Truth, which is, um, yeah, an interesting twist on that. Anyway, they published a report in June 2001 that senior officers in the Russian Navy had engaged in an elaborate deception to cover the actual cause of disaster. This referred to the statement that the boat's captain, Gennady Yachin, had sent a message to headquarters immediately prior to the explosion. We have a malfunctioning torpedo. Request permission to fire it. Though it is unlikely that, as captain of the vessel, he would have needed to request permission under such circumstances. The Russian Navy was later criticized as misrepresenting facts and misleading the public. The Navy feared that if it was revealed that the submarine blew up because of crew incompetence, Russia's status as a great power would be in doubt. Their response was compared to the Soviet style of cover-up and stonewalling like that during the Chernobyl disaster, which was exactly what was happening back then. Minister of Defense Sergeyev said in interviews on 21st of March 2000 that he never refused any foreign help. Now, The Guardian, um, which I'm going to be using as a source later, wrote in a 2002 review of two books, Kursk, Russia's Lost Pride and A Time to Die, the Kursk disaster, quote, a hopelessly flawed rescue attempt, hampered by badly designed and decrepit equipment, illustrates uh, the fatal decline of Russia's military power. The Navy's callous approach to the families of the missing men was reminiscent of an earlier Soviet insensitivity to an individual misery. The lies and incompetent cover-ups launched by both the Navy and the government were resurrected from a pre-Glasnost era. The wildly contradictory conspiracy theories about what caused the catastrophe said more about naval high command in turmoil 
fumbling for a scapegoat than about the accident itself. Now, the thing is that this also gives you some reasoning to understand why exactly Putin, from then on, was so concerned about Russia's military might, and why they're trying to build stuff up, even though they can't afford it, and even though the money's being... Why are they trying to pretend that Russia has such an insane military might? And why are they doing all these short little victorious wars in Crimea and Abkhazia and everywhere else, basically? Because they need, they need to come back from this somehow. Putin still remembers this. Putin still has this in his head. And again, we can tie together this study of Kursk as the border moment when Russia was humiliated and Putin said never again. Why he's so angry about all this situation. At any rate, I'll use The Guardian again. And this is from August 5th, 2001. And yeah, by this point, it was exactly as the captain had stated, and he had sent the message about, about the exploded torpedo there. See, Kursk was a special submarine. It was supposed to be unsinkable, you see. It could even withstand a direct hit from a torpedo attack, on paper at least. A Kursk was a leviathan with almost mythical reputation as a war machine. This gargantuan nuclear submarine the size of two turbo-jumbo jets. Yeah, that was the pride of the Russian Navy. And when this massive explosion ripped open the steel nose of the Kursk during exercises, no one in Russia could believe it. The blast was so vast it was detected as far as away as Alaska. And, like I said, all 118 crewmen lost their lives in the disaster. And, yeah... Few will forget, kind of, at least from my generation, who watched it on live television. I was quite young back then, but still, I still remember that there were on the TV scenes of desperate relatives waiting at Wayside for news of the sailors growing ever more furious at the official smokescreen of this information. And looking back, these scenes now seem all the more cruel, as it must have been clear to the Navy from the start. There was never any hope of rescuing the crew. And the sinking of the Kursk is still a conspiracy theorist's dream, with some of the wilder explanations at that point in 2001 still were emerging from highest levels of Russian naval command. At first, it was suggested that the submarine may have been hit by an old World War II mine, been struck by friendly fire, been hit by another boat, been hit by a NATO submarine, struck a NATO submarine, all the things. Like, everything, basically. Just everything that could possibly go wrong, blamed on it. But again, remember that just as Russia recently, uh, at least on paper, did their own little thing about, you know, the nuclear-powered rockets that will go ultrasonic and, well, in the nice cartoons Putin presented two years ago would strike the coast of Florida, then an archangel, Arhangelsk, while testing one of these rockets, boom, nuclear thing happened, uh, radioactive waste everywhere, uh, again, total denial of everything. Again, all these explanations, one thing that they really fail to acknowledge is the fact that Russia had claims about the Kursk's impregnability. It seemed inconceivable that the double hull and the nine watertight compartments of the submarine could have been punctured by anything but the most violent explosion. And sire websites have been devoted to the theory that something went wrong with tests on a top-secret new ultra-high-speed torpedo Squall, or Squall, said to be unstoppable by NATO technology. But there is no evidence that there were any Squall torpedoes on board, and some experts doubt even their very existence, and they are proven to never have even existed. 
They existed only on paper because Russia couldn't even afford them at the time. And much less now, their weapons development really lags behind. They're missing out on a lot of things, and you can see they're lacking specifically in drone technologies even today. Man, I should do an episode on the state of the Russia's military today. And uh, more credible was the theory being pushed by, until recently by senior officers in the Russian Navy that the Kursk had collided with a British or, or American submarine spying on the maneuvers in the Barents Sea, end quote from there. But, but, British torpedo experts, seismologists, working on the case, solved the mystery of the Kursk by drawing on secret government documents about the near-forgotten submarine accident of the coast of Portland and the southern coast of England. And what they have discovered deeply embarrassed the Russia's Navy High Command. That is the real deal. When the Kursk smashed into the ocean floor on the 12th August 2000, stories quickly emerged about the presence on board of torpedoes containing highly concentrated hydrogen peroxide liquid. Far from being a new super torpedo, the weapon cleared for use by the Russian Navy in 1997 was old-fashioned, cheap, and potentially unstable. The use of so-called HTP, high-test peroxide, which supplies oxygen to the torpedo's engine, had been stopped in British subs in the 1950s after a series of accidents, although no one could quite explain why the substance, which is not flammable by itself and does not mix or react with fuel, could cause an explosion. Then, Maurice Stradling, a torpedo designer and former lecturer at the Royal Naval Engineering College in Plymouth, when the British guys in something called Royal Naval Engineering College yeah, you better listen to them, those guys know things about Navy, began to examine the similarities between the Kursk disaster and the unsolved mystery of an explosion on board a British submarine in June 1955 at Portland, he found some interesting similarities. The front of the submarine, the Sidon, had been blown apart by an experimental torpedo containing HDP, while the men on board were loading it. Thirteen men died in the blast from the casing of the torpedo. Now, with the help of documents from the original inquiry discovered by the BBC science program Horizon, Stradling found the explanation for both disasters. Quote, I had taught students about the sighted accident for years in the class about torpedoes, and we always believed it had something to do with hydrogen peroxide, Stradling told the observer. But no one really knew how it had happened. But the report of the secret board of inquiry into the sighted disaster revealed some staggering new pieces of information. A stainless steel pipe carrying the HTP to the engine had burst, and the original inquiry had found that the torpedo had been accidentally started before it had been fired. These facts combined to explain why the explosion had taken place. The use of HTP in torpedoes depends on the reaction it has when it comes to contact with certain metals. When it touches silver, the element often used in this type of torpedo, the hydrogen peroxide breaks down into water, vapor, and oxygen, which is used to help to power the engine. At the same time, it expands in volume by 5,000 times. For this reason, the chemical reaction can only be allowed to begin when the engine is fully operational and during the firing process. Stradling showed the sighted accident happened because the pipe containing the HDP blew open, spraying the inside of the torpedo with superheated water, pure oxygen, and pressurized hydrogen peroxide, which had nowhere else to go. At this point, a completely uncontrolled reaction with the metal components in that part of the torpedo occurred, bursting the whole casing open like a balloon. The British expert believes a nearly identical scenario took place in the Kursk, except this time the consequences were even more devastating. Stradling showed the explosion of the practice torpedo, set off a chain reaction with the live warheads in the bow of the Russian submarine, causing the massive explosion that sent Kursk to the bottom of the very sea. 
captain of the Sidon, Commander Hugh Verry, who survived the terrible accident, also made the connection. Quote, When I first heard about the Kursk, I assumed that it was probably a collision. However, then I heard there may have been some HTP fuel torpedoes carried on board, and I began to wonder whether they hadn't had the same problem as we had on the Sidon all those years ago. Now, this is, again, interesting. All these things are just crazy. Because this is still, still insane. Because this is exactly what happened. And this is the theory that had been proven. And we know that because we got it out. And we got some interesting stories, really, from what happened when the Russians raised the Kursk. You see, the Russian government contracted the Dutch Marine Salvage Operations, Smith International and Mamoet, to raise Kursk from the seafloor. That was a $65 million salvage operation. It became the largest salvage operation of its type ever accomplished. The salvage operation was extremely dangerous because of the risk of radiation from the reactor, and, uh, well, one thing that showed things was the fact that only seven of the submarine's 24 torpedoes were accounted for. Salvage divers from Halliburton first detached the bow from the rest of the vessel because it might have contained unexploded torpedo warheads and because it could break off and destabilize the lifting. The divers installed two large hydraulic section anchors into the seabed and attached a high stern tungsten carbide abrasive saw that was pulled back and forth over the bow between the anchors. It took ten days to detach the bow. After the bow was cut free, the salvage crews raised several smaller pieces of wreckage. This included a piece of torpedo tube weighing about a ton, which was analyzed to try to learn that the explosion occurred inside or outside the tube. Of course, now we know the results. And this was kind of, um, kind of a weird thing. They raised as much as they could, and the, the Russians initially intended to raise the bow, too, from the seafloor, possibly containing detonated torpedoes, but then decided it was too risky. Some analysts theorized the Russians may also have wanted to prevent foreign countries from assessing the debris, which had been classified as state secrets. They blew up the remnants in September 2002. However, well, this is where the sad part started to happen. See, out of the 118 men, there were 24 men assigned to compartments 6 through 9 towards the rear of the boat. Of that number, 23 survived the two blasts and gathered in the small ninth compartment, which had an escape hatch. Captain Lieutenant Dmitry Kodesnikov, head of the turbine unit in the seventh compartment, and one of the three surviving officers of the trank apparently took charge. Emergency lightning was normally powered by batteries located in the first compartment, but these had been destroyed in explosion. But the ninth compartment contained a number of independent emergency lights, which apparently worked. Kudesnikov wrote two notes, part of which were released by Vice Admiral Motsak to the media for the first time on the 27th of October 2000. The first, written at 13.15, one hour and 45 minutes after the second explosion, contained a private note to his family and on reverse information on their situation and the names of those in the ninth compartment. The handwriting appears normal, indicating the sailors still have some light. Quote, It's 13.15. All personnel from section 6, 7, and 8 have moved to section 9, and there are 23 people here. You feel bad. 
weakened by carbon dioxide. Pressure is increasing in the compartment. If we head for the surface, we won't survive the compression. We won't last more today. All personnel from section 6, 7, and 8 have moved to section 9. We have made the decision because none of us can escape. Kolesnikov wrote the second note at 15.15. His writing was extremely difficult to read. It's dark here to write, but I'll try by feelings. It seems like there are no chances. Then 20%. Let's hope that at least someone will read this. Here is the list of personnel from the other sections who are now in the ninth and will attempt to get out. Regards to everybody. No need to despair. Kolesnikov. The newspaper is Vestia, reported on 26th February 2001. Written by... Lieutenant Counter-Admiral Rashid Aryapov had been recovered during the initial rescue operation. Aryapov held a senior position in the 6th compartment. The note was written on the page of the detective novel wrapped in plastic. It was found in the pocket of his clothing after his body was recovered. Izvestia quoted unidentified naval officers who claimed that Aryapov wrote that the explosion was caused by, again, false in the torpedo compartment, namely the explosion of a torpedo of which the Kursk had to carry out tests. Izvestia had also stated that Aryapov, that as a result of the explosions, the submarine was tossed violently about, and many crew members were injured by equipment that tore loose as a result. To the Russian public, it appeared that the Russian Navy was covering up its inability to rescue the trapped sailors. There was considerable debate about how long, over how long the sailors in the ninth compartment had survived. Because when the nuclear reactor is automatically shut down, the air purification system would have shut down too, emergency power would be limited, and the crews would soon have been in complete darkness and experiencing falling temperatures. Russian military officers initially gave conflicting accounts that survivors could have lived up to a week within the sub, but those that died would have been killed very quickly. The Dutch recovery team reported that they thought the men in the least affected ninth compartment might have survived for two to three hours, but the level of carbon dioxide the compartment exceeded that which people can produce in a closed space. Divers found ash and dust inside the compartment when they first opened the hatch, evidence of a fire. But this fire was separate from that caused by the exploding torpedo. Notes recovered later, all of it, completely, showed that some sailors in the ninth compartment were alive at least 6 hours and 17 minutes after the boat sank. Vice Admiral Vladislav Ilyin, first deputy chief of the Russia's Navy staff and head of the Kursk Naval Incident Cell, concluded that the survivors had lived up to three days. In any event, as we know, the Russian rescue teams were poorly equipped and badly organized, while foreign teams and equipment were far away and not given permission to assist. Very unlikely that any rescue operation by either Russian or foreign specialists could have arrived and reached the sub in time to rescue any survivors, though. Sad. Sad, but true. Really, this is a story about Rush, one of the Russia's greatest failures. And things that... Things that really should be learned from. Because... It all ties together. Today, up until today, the Kursk lives on... Memories of of the relatives of the sailors who died there, and and how Russia acts itself in the political sphere all over the world, like I mentioned previously. Outside the port city of Severodvinsk, where the submarine was built, a large granite slab was erected on sand dunes. It is engraved. 
This sorrowful stone is set in memory of the crew of the nuclear submarine Kursk, who tragically died on the 12th of August while on military duty. It sits there. It sits there as a kind of reminder. But just to show you how much sometimes the government does not care, on 17th of March 2009, journalist Tatyana Abramova from the newspaper Murmansky Vesnik, or Murmansk News, found Kursk's sail, you know, the above part of, of the submarine, of a scrap metal dealer. It had been left there after several years of negotiations had failed to raise the estimated 22,000 euros for a memorial. The discovery sparked an outcry among the citizens of Murmansk and they demanded it be turned into a memorial to the men who died. After considerable difficulty, the memorial was finally completed and dedicated on Sunday, 26th July 2009, Russia's Navy Day. It was placed on the observation deck of the Church of the Savior on Water in Murmansk, the submarine's home port, and the location of Vyayevo naval base. It is a memorial dedicated to the men who died, the submariners who died in peacetime. It lists the names of the crew members. Now everything can go wrong and we explore Mars and underwater and everywhere. And everything can just go crazy, right? Well, sometimes it does. And sometimes all of this has lasting consequences. I sincerely hope this gave you something to think about. Even if just for a bit. We're going to have a nice little special episode soon about the uh, Soviet Army Day, but we'll see. going to go back to other tanks, and soon people's studies will, will be available too. Thank you for listening. До свидания, товарищ. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.